2022 ACB Virtual DC Leadership Meetings will be held Saturday, March 12th through Tuesday, March 15th. Registration is $20 for ACB members and $30 for non-members. ACB members were sent a discount code via email. If you're an ACB member and did not receive the discount code, please call the Minneapolis office at 612-332-3242. Registration closes March 9. Visit acb.org for more information or register at https slash slash tinyurl.com slash 2022-DC-Leadership-Meetings. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to um, Linda. Take it away. Hi, everyone. This is Linda Merriman, and I'm speaking to you from Waco, Texas, and I'm a lifetime member of Whole Foundation and Learning Center. Our presentation today is Legacy of Oral Hall, and it's presented by E.G. Swift, who has done extensive genealogical and detective work to put this commentary together. I would like to remind you to please remain muted until the question and answer session because any noise can be really distracting. When it comes time to answer questions, I will give instructions on raising lawyer hands and muting and unmuting. And in the meantime, I would like you to know the whole Foundation Learning Center was founded in 1962 to serve people with vision loss. We invite you to join us at our beautiful campus just outside Portland, Oregon, in Sandy, Oregon, at one of our Living in Sight Loss seminars or other getaways that we offer throughout the year where you can take advantage of our sensory garden, our hiking trails, and our fully stocked fishing pond. We also offer peer-to-peer support and as you know, many weekly calls on Zoom. At the end of this session, I will give you information about our upcoming retreat, upcoming Zoom calls, and how to find out more. So get those note-taking devices ready. Okay, I would like to introduce E.G. Swift. Thank you, Linda. I am also a lifetime member, and I'm also a board member of the Orahole Foundation and Learning Center. I will be presenting the legacy of Oral B. Hull in three parts today. The first is her family heritage, then the life story of Oral Hull and her family, and finally the legacy she left behind through her generous gift of the 23-acre Oral Hull Park in Sandy, Oregon. I will pause after each section to take your questions, if you have any. In addition, at the end of this um, meeting, I will provide the whole office a copy of the family histories that they can distribute to you via email, as well as a copy of the script that I wrote for this presentation. Born in July 31st, 1891 in Tama County, Iowa, Oral was the third of five children of Eli Milton Hartzell and Jeanette C. Hall. Jeanette, who went by Nettie, was the, was the 14th of 17 children of Larkin Hall and Sarah Ann Thomas. The Hall family farmed 800 acres in Tama County, about 65 miles northeast of Des Moines. I have traced the Hall lineage back to six generations, 
1720, when Moses Hall was born the son of Richard Hall of Gloucestershire in England. Moses emigrated to Connecticut, and he and his uh, son, Moses Jr., fought um, for the Connecticut Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Moses Jr. was awarded a badge of military merit. We know this award today as the Purple Heart. His son, Squire Hall, served in the military during the War of 1812. Eli Milton Hartzell was the sixth of nine children of the Willis Hartzell and Lucinda Richards. The Hartzells lived near the halls in Tama County, but did not own their own land. I have traced the Hartzell lineage back 16 generations to Nicholas Hartzell, who was born in 1380 in, this is a tough one, in the I'll just spell it, P-F-A-F-F-I-K-O-N, Zurich, Switzerland. What's interesting is according to the historical biographer, according to the historical biographical encyclopedia of Switzerland, all the Herzls have their origins in Fafikon, Canon Zurich, the city and lake um, of the same name date back to the year 804, and it is believed that the surname Herzl, which was uh, first registered in 1530. Hang on a second. While the Halls were noted soldiers, the Herzls were politicians. The Herzl name is well known in Zurich as many Herzls have served as mayor of Zurich over the years. Even today, Marco Herzl is the mayor of Philophicon. After six generations in Philophicon, some Herzls emigrated to Germany, including Hans Heinrich Herzl, who emigrated to the Baden-Württemberg region in 1640. Some areas of Germany had been so decimated by the Thirty Years' War that large tracts of land became available and many Herzls moved from Switzerland to Germany. During their time in Germany, many, uh, many changed their surname to Herzl. It was originally H-I-R-T-Z-E-L, and then in Germany became H-E-R-T-Z-E-L. After four generations there, Hans Jacob Herzl emigrated to Pennsylvania in 1727. Eventually, the family migrated first to Ohio, then to Indiana, where Eli was born, and finally to Carleton Township in Tama County. As they moved, the final spelling of the surname Hartzell, H-A-R-T-Z-E-L-L, evolved. From a small village in Switzerland, the Herzls certainly went forth and multiplied. During these 16 generations of Herzls, the, the direct paternal offspring numbered 126, an average of almost eight per family, including the 20 children that Peter Herzl had with three different wives from 1511 to 1573. Either the Herzls were very prosperous or very lonely. With that, I'm going to take a short break for questions. Linda, are there any hands raised? 
Is anybody still awake? <laughs> Lynn, there, we, we've got one hand. Rantu? Good morning, Rantu. You're muted. Rantu, yeah, you need to unmute. Maybe while he's doing that, Linda, could you remind everybody how to raise and unraise yes. and mute? Certainly. Uh, in case you don't know on, on your various devices, I'm going to describe for each one. You can mute and unmute on a PC by using Alt plus A, and you can raise your hand by using Alt plus Y. On the Mac, you can mute and unmute by using Command-Shift-A, and you can raise your hand by using option Y. If you're using an, an app, you will unmute by using the lower left-hand corner. Or you can raise your hand or lower your hand by using the more button lower in the right-hand corner. And then you flick left to hear raise hand. And for a regular touch telephone, you will mute and unmute by using star six. You can raise your hand by using or, or lower your hand by using star nine. Run two. Yeah, can I be heard now? Yes. Okay. Hi, EJ. Good morning, Ron two. Good morning. I was intrigued by um, uh, the 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 Herzl family name. Uh, can in your in your study in your research did you find out what religion they were? Um, I'm not sure that um, I know for certain. I know that uh, some generations appeared to be Lutheran, but when they came to the United States, they they certainly uh, became very um, different. Uh -huh. um, uh, because because I know the name Herzl to be like a, a a Hebrew name or a Jewish name. I, I don't have any any knowledge that that is the case. That the town where they lived, um, they have they have they've done archaeological digs there in Switzerland in Phil, Phil, yeah. P F A F F I K O N, and they they've dated three different settlements over three thousand years back. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. The the current village began in eight eight oh four is the is the first document. Um, the Herzls, the, there is a crop near. Um, that is grown. It's a, it's a legume that's grown in that area that is, has a similar name, uh, although the, the Encyclopedia of uh, Swiss Biographies indicated they didn't think that, that that's where the name came from. But um, I, there was nothing in the record that indicated that they may have been Jewish. Okay, thank you. Uh, but I will look further at some point. Uh, I'm not done with my research yet. It's a fun um, detective thing. I'm a member of the Central Texas Genealogical Society here in Waco. I'm also a member of the St. Louis Genealogical Society and the German uh, <laughs> Genealogical Society of Minneapolis. So I do have additional resources. And um, St. Louis in particular has really good resources on Jewish uh, family research. And if I do find um, some indication there, I'll, I'll hopefully be able to, to um, see if there's a thread that I can pull. All right. Thank you, EJ. Next Don. is Don Mitchell. Yes. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. E.G., I was very interested because 
in our book club, we've been reading about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her, uh, her life in the Dakotas and Missouri and Kansas. Uh, how was farming in, in the area where the Holes lived? Did they have a better, uh, better life as far as being farmers? I don't think so. I've actually looked at the plot of land from 18, um, I guess about 1885 and the halls had 800 acres. Um, the, the, and there is only probably maybe, uh, but I was looking at the Carlton township, which is where they were to the South of them was an, uh, an Indian reservation, a very small one. In fact, the County is named after a, a, an Indian, um, leader that has a 18 syllables in the name. Um, and uh, there's two rivers that flow through the county. There's two railroads, and there were two churches. There was a Presbyterian church and a Methodist church. Uh, over over time, uh, some more Christian and, and um, um, what do you call it? That um, oh, I'm drawing a blank here. But the kind of church that has has now uh, no uh, central um, organization kind of kind of evolved. But Quaker? It, it, no, not Quaker, but it's. Um, not evolutionary, but uh, uh, my brain's dead. Um, it's too cold here in Texas. Uh, anyway, so, Unitarian? Um, no, but uh, non-denominational, non uh, but but religious, just where they start up and, and um, yeah, um, anyway. Um, Episcopalian? No, I, I was born Episcopalian. Actually, I was born Lutheran, became Episcopalian, then, then went back to Lutheran. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so the county was not very prosperous. Um, it, it peaked in population at 12,000 in 1900, and it's gone down ever since. In the last few years, it's probably had a little bit more increase, but it's peaked over the course of the history of, of, of uh, the town. The county seat is Toledo. Um, but the county has never done very much. It's, um, um, I, I don't know that it's as bad as it was in Dakotas, but it's, it's just basic farmland. So hope that helps a little bit. Any other questions? Uh, Carolyn? Yes, thank you. Hi, AG, it's Carolyn Oley. How are you, Carolyn? I am well, thank you. But I have... Um, had a question from one of my garden club folks. She's been trying to get in and is not being let in. And I'm wondering, are we still letting in people to the discussion or have we stopped doing that now? She should be able to get in if she's in the waiting room. There is okay. no waiting room because it's an ACB. Ah, okay. So I wonder if she's trying to get into the whole community or you know the regular whole room because this is an acb room this is tony she might have clicked on the first link that said oral hall a little closer to the beginning and she should click on the second one okay i'll let her know Thank the other you thing much. is it's not on the um this is g marie it is not on today's acb call list which is very unfortunate thanks guys Okay, no, problem. no, no more, no more hands. Okay. When we last, last left the Hartzels, uh, we were talking about how the Hartzell name evolved, but so did oral Hartzell's name evolve. 
her birth certificate in the Tama County, Iowa records list <clears throat> her name as O-R-E-L, uh, Hartzell. And on the 1895 Iowa State Census and the 1900 U.S. Census in Marshall, Iowa, it is listed as O-R-R-E-L, Hartzell. However, by 1910 census in Portland, the um, and thereafter, it is always O-R-A-L, Hartzell, unless she got married, which she did three times, which we'll hear about in a minute. Uh, Eli and Nettie Hartzell married on July 4th, 1886. They had five children. Four were born in Iowa. Floyd Ervil, born in 1887. Aura Clarence, born in 1890. Oral B, of course, born in 1891. Hang on one second. And uh, Gladys Marie, born in 1900. After they moved to Portland, another daughter was stillborn in 1901 and did not receive a name. But she did receive a birth certificate. It's not clear why Eli and Nettie, longtime farmers, chose to move to Portland in the fall of 1900. Tama County reached its highest population in 1900, some 12,000 people, but has declined in population ever since. It might have been the taxes. In 1892, the county tax assessor's uh, roll showed the Hartzell had to pay a poll tax and a road tax of 50 cents to the county. By 1897, the assessor was charging $5 for each tax. In addition, Nettie's father, Larkin, died in 1899, and the estate may not have provided much for each of his 17 children. It may have been time for new horizons in Oregon. The first mention of the Hartzells in Oregon is in 1901, Portland City Directory. It lists Eli as a laborer living at 470 Grand Avenue. The 1904 city directory lists Eli M. Hartzell as a car man for the CNS Railway living at 626 East 16th. And in the 1906 directory, Oral's father is listed as a teamster living at 16th Street address along with her brother Floyd and Ora, her brother, listed as laborers. Oral is listed as a boarder in the house. The next time we hear of Oral Hartzell in the records is when she married Otto Augusta Thune on August 19, 1908 in Vancouver, Washington. It's very interesting the number of marriages that happened in Vancouver, even though people were from Portland. They would have had to take a ferry across the river, but the, the marriage laws in, in Oregon apparently at that time were pretty strict. And um, when, when she got married, she was 17. He was 28. His residence was 701 East 18th in Portland, so they must have been close neighbors in living in the same neighborhood. There is a portrait of them in the files of them sitting together just after they were married. It's the only picture I have of a young Oral Cole. Her brother Aura and his wife Lillian are listed as witnesses to the wedding. Otto Augusta Thune was born in 1879 in Marine, Minnesota. His parents were both born in Germany. On the 1910 census, Otto and, and Oral 
are living in Portland and Otto is listed as a teamster. However, the marriage did not last very long. On the 1914 and 1915 Portland City Directories, Mrs. Oral Thune is living at 369 East 11th and is working as a nurse. Otto is listed as a teamster at a different address. By May 3rd, 1915, the Oregon Daily Journal reported that Oral was granted a divorce from Otto due to cruelty, which was, uh, could be, have been in many things. Otto later remarried in 1932, but that marriage only lasted two years. During the 1920s and 1930s, he lived in rural Oregon City and Estacada. He died January 29th, 1951 in Clackamas County. He is buried in Riverview Cemetery in Portland. Six months to the day of her divorce, Oral Hortzel married Werner Leonard Ruffner on November 3rd, 1915 in Clark County, Washington. And I believe the rules of the laws back then is once you divorced or once you had a, a death of a spouse, you had to wait six months to get married. I think that's, I don't know if that's still true or not. Um, they were both listed as residents of Portland and Oral's sister-in-law, Lillian Hartzell, was once again uh, listed as a witness. Werner was born in 1886 in Ragaz, Switzerland, the youngest of eight children of George Ruffner and Anna Elizabeth Hyaney. Werner Ruffner emigrated to the U.S., departing Liverpool on November 23, 1907, on the ship Camarana, arriving in New York on City on December 1st. His occupation was listed as a baker. He was naturalized on April 7, 1916. With the Hartzell Swiss family heritage, it is interesting to note that Oral's older brother married a Swiss girl, Ruth Helen Eggeman, and Oral's sister, Gladys, married Ruth's brother, Swiss brother, George William Eggeman. By 1917, Werner Cook and Oral were living at 447 East Sherman in Portland. In 1918 and on the 1920 census, they were listed at 228 6th Street in Portland, and Werner was listed and become a pastry chef. By 1921, Portland City directories, they had moved away from the city center out to 175 East 44th Street in Portland. While Oral's life with Werner was settling down, the rest of the Hartzell family had trouble keeping out of the newspapers. In September 1902, the Oregon Daily Journal reported that Charles Hausman was charged with assault on her brother Floyd Hartzell. In his defense, Hausman accused Hartzell of having hit his baby with a bat. In July 1903, the same paper reported Floyd Hartzell was arrested and was being held on $750 bond, which in that time was a lot, for the assault with a knife of a baseball pitcher, William Hogg. Several years later, Aura, her other brother, was arrested by Portland police for an assault in a bar fight in Estacada when he returned home to Portland on a late night train and the Portland police were waiting for his arrival. In 1909, Eli, her father, remembering the political Hartzells of Zurich, was a candidate for Portland city mayor. 
In an early straw vote poll by the Oregon Daily Journal, he was trailing the incumbent, Harry Lane, who had 149 straw votes, while Eli had only one vote and ended up with a total of five votes in the poll, which would have been himself and, and probably two of his friends and two of his sons. So that was the end of his political career. However, he um, became involved with alcohol. In 1911, Eli Hartzell was in the papers when he applied to transfer a saloon license from Frank Minto, a quote unquote, notorious North Ender, who was under investigation. The transfer was tabled. However, Eli eventually received a license, but in 1914, he lost his saloon license at 214 Third Street for failure to pay saloon fees. Oral's brother Orr made the papers in 1918 as his, his wife, Lillian Hartzell, who had been her witness at, the, at two of her weddings, was granted a divorce from Oral C. Hartzell for desertion. Not to be outdone, a March 1920 newspaper reported that Eli and Aura, her brother, uh, were arrested at their house at 705 Milwaukee Avenue for running a moonshine operation out of their house. And they found at the time they were storing five pints of moonshine behind the bathtub. Aura was fined $25 and he and his father were released. Not long after, in 1924, Eli and Nettie are so moved to the family, moved the family to Sandy. According to the Sandy Historical Society, Sandy was a hotbed for moonshiners in the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, the first woman arrested for moonshining in Oregon was a Sandy woman, also named Nettie, but not related, who was arrested in the early 1920s for moonshining. So that may be why the farm became existent. Now I don't have proof, but it seems to be, it's interesting uh, conjunction. Oral's brother got into a fight with Werner and Oral in 1924. The paper reported that Oral suffered a broken nose during the fight at the Ruffner home. It seems that after that point, there was a division in the family uh, and the family was beginning to fall apart. Oral, her brother, died of cancer in 1926 and her other brother, Floyd, settled down in rural Beaverton at that time. Her sister Gladys and her husband settled in Canby. Oral and Werner moved to San Leandro, California and it, by, by 1932 as Werner, a cook, was listed on the voter registration polls in San Francisco. And then in 1934, he was listed on the rolls as a pastry chef at the Fairmont Hospital in San Leandro, California. On September 4th, 1939, Werner Ruffner died at the Fairmont Hotel, or Hospital rather, in Alameda of hypertension, uh, cardiac disease, and articular fibrillation. His remains are in the mausoleum in the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland, California. Six months after Werner's death in California, Oral married Albert Joseph Hall on October 17, 1940, in Vancouver, Washington. Her residence was listed as Clackamas County. His was Santa Cruz, California. 
Albert was born December 17th, 1896 in Santa Cruz, California, and died August 26, 1962 in Sandy. He served as a CM3 in the Navy, enlisting December 1917 and serving uh, until July, or excuse me, January of 1921. On Albert, Albert Hall's World War II draft registration in 1942, his and Oral's address was listed at 2139 Southeast 51st Street in Portland, where they lived for a number of years. He was employed by Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation. He was five foot 11 inches tall, 190 pounds, had a one inch scar on his chin and tattoos on both forearms. Oral's father died in November 1941 at Providence Hospital in Portland, although he was still living on the farm in Sandy. He is buried at Lincoln Park Cemetery and Mausoleum in Portland. Oral's oldest brother, Floyd, died in 1949. Oral's mother, Jeanette Arnetti, died in November 1957 of a cerebral hemorrhage. She is buried with her husband, Eli, at Lincoln Park Cemetery in Portland. Oral and Albert lived quietly at the Sandy Farm until his death in 1962. Oral died March 31st, 1970. Albert and Oral Hall are buried together at Portland's Memorial Cemetery, plot F4132. Let's take a break so I can get a drink of water before I talk about the legacy Oral Hall left us. Linda, are there any hands raised? We have Ron too. Hello, Ron too again. Hello again. Um, first of all, I hope there's not going to be a quiz because there's so much, <laughs> so much research. But one thing you mentioned that sort of like confused me earlier in your recent uh, description of the history, you said that. Um, one of the people was uh, la their labor. They were labeled as a teamster. Correct. I thought the teamsters didn't start until the thirties. The teamsters, in terms of as truck drivers, no. But teamsters were people who worked with the horses and the wagons. Oh, okay. So, so that, it, that kind of teamster. Okay, <clears throat> so it wasn't labor union. No. Okay, that, that clarifies yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but if you worked with if you if you worked with a team of horses, you were a teamster. Got it. Okay, thank you. You bet. More questions? Not at this time. Wow. Okay. I really put you put you to sleep. All right. <laughs> Let me continue. Uh, when Oral died in 1970. She was survived by her sister Gladys of Canby and her husband, George Eggerman, and their son, Jack, who was a noted, uh, by the way, he was a Jack Eggerman, was a very well-known uh, baseball player for Milwaukee High School, won a lot of awards, um, as well as her brother, Floyd's widow, Ruth, and their son, Ervil, who lived in Beaverton. Even though she had living relatives, Oral and Albert had made a decision in 1962 to leave the 23-acre park to serve as a refuge when blind and visually impaired people were, could 
uh, would feel safe and relax. What started as a refuge over the last 60 years has become an important resource for the blind community. I'd like to introduce you to three people who worked with Oral in the 1960s to create the foundation and the facilities. They are Judge George Holweiler, Evangeline Philbin, and Margaret Breck. So first I'm gonna talk a little bit about Judge George Holweiler, who was born in 1910 and died in 1991. <coughs> Excuse me. George Lyle Holweiler, the judge, was born in Alberta, Canada on September 17, 1910. He was blinded in a blasting uh, cap accident at the age of 15. He graduated from the Washington State School for the Blind in 1931. He later attended Eastern Washington State College in Shaney, uh, Washington, where he received a teaching degree and met his wife-to-be, Ruth, in 1939. He did piano tuning to put bread on the table, and he and his wife taught school in Carleton, Washington. She, the lower grades, and he, the upper grades. He did graduate work at, he did graduate work at Washington State University, um, and George graduated from Northern Northwest School of Law, now affiliated with Lewis and Clark College in Portland, in 1952. He set up his law practice in Sandy, Oregon, and was elected to the Office of Justice of the Peace in 1956 in a landslide vote. Judge Howard was one of the original founders of the American Council of, for the Blind in Oregon and was named um, Handicapped American of the Year in 1972 by then Governor Tom McCall. In 1962, the Halls came to the judge to seek advice on the disposition of their 23-acre farm. One of the judge's uh, suggestions was, for, was fostered by the judge's memory of a lovely lakeside estate near Spokane, Washington. This estate was now owned and used by the then Washington State Association for the Blind. It was, a, it was after Mrs. Hall's cancer surgery from which she had not expected to recover and the death of Mr. Hall in 1962, that the judge um, dreamed of becoming a uh, dream became a reality. Through the generous generosity of Mrs. Hall in willing the 23 acre grounds and, and the legal advice of Judge Howard, the Oral Hall Foundation was formed and now stands as a beautiful memory to Mrs. Hall. The judge lost his wife, Ruth, in 1973 and lost his guide dog, Top, when they were hit by a car in 1974. The judge died in 1991. Second person I'd like to talk about is Evangeline Philbin, who was born in 1891, same year as, as Oral, and died in 1974. Evangeline Philbin was born in California and suffered uh, a loss of her mother when she was six, eight years old. Her father enrolled her in a convent boarding school where she received her early education. In the early 1900s, after he, her father's death, she moved to Oregon and purchased a beautiful home at 3574 East Burnside, where she resided until her death. 
She had been employed by the U.S. Postal Service for 35 years in high executive positions. She was a lifetime president of the original Portland Women's Forum. And it was in 1965 <coughs> that this forum named Mrs. Oral Hall the Woman of the Year. In 1963, Evangeline Philbin received a letter from the Gresham Women's uh, of Elks containing um, information on the newly formed All Hall Foundation. And she became interested in the project and met with the Oral Hall Boosters Club shortly thereafter. She organized the annual Philbin Christmas dinner uh, party for the blind and helped the first two, uh, held the first two in her home. At the first few parties, she presented plaques to several individuals who were working for the development of the Oral Hall Foundation <coughs> to be held at the park. Unfortunately, she did not live to see her dream come true. However, it did come true at the public at the Philbin Christmas party in 1975 after the Rainbow Lodge was um, constructed. She left provisions in her will for these dinner parties to be carried on. Under Ms. Philbin's leadership, the Women's Forum was active in the beautification of the Columbia Gorge and the annual event at Depot Bay, memorializing those that lost at sea. She was also instrumental in, in getting people to remember Oral Hall in their wills and was responsible for Dr. Robert Morgan, a retired dentist, leaving a sizable legacy to the foundation. <clears throat> Our present dormitory, which accommodates 48 guests, was made possible through the Miss Philbin's estate and was dedicated in as Philbin Hall in 1982. Neither Evangeline Philbin, who never married, and the judge and his wife, Ruth, had children. However, our third guest here on the Legacy Channel is Margaret Susan Clark Breck, who was born in 1921 and died in 2012. She did have four children, uh, and all four are still living. Uh, one is a retired psychiatrist in Portland. One lives in, uh, half a year in Missouri and half a year up in the Cascades. And then she has a son who uh, lives in California and a son who lives in the Philippines. I had a son who lives in, still lives in the Philippines. One of the most compelling reasons to visit the Oral Hall Park today is the unique Gardens of Enchantment. The driving force behind this was Margaret Breck. Born on August 12, 1921 to Jack and Bertha Clark, she grew up in Milwaukee. Margaret graduated from Milwaukee High School in 1939 and married Hans Breck in 1942. She worked at the local Montgomery Wards and the, the Mount Hood Council of, of Campfire Girls, as well as in real estate. She was an active, she was active in garden clubs at the local district and state level, including holding the office of district president. She was instrumental in the development of the Gardens of Enchantment and Memorial Gardens as well as the building of the garden shelter. On June 21st, 1970, there was a breaking ground for ceremony for the Five Senses Garden. Tom Halverson was the landscape designer and Judge Holweiler, the project coordinator. The project is a, was a joint venture of Clackamas and Multnomah District Garden Clubs. 
<coughs> at the dedication of the Garden of Enchantment, nearly 600 people were present. The gardens were an immediate hit. Um, braille, plaque, braille plaques placed throughout helped explain the features of the gardens. It soon became apparent that there was a need for a building and through Margaret Breck's efforts and the garden clubs, a shelter, which is now referred to as the Gipo, gazebo, was built. <coughs> Excuse me. Not used to talking this much. Um, anyway, there's five sections in the, in the Gardens of Enchantment. There's a hearing section, which is designed for um, the morning glory found, fountain creates the sound of falling water. Um, benches are spread around the raised pool, providing a relaxing spot where visitors can listen to the songs of birds, the sounds of water, and the music of wind chimes. There's a taste section, a 64-foot-long raised bed featuring herbs of varieties of small end flavors, both annuals and perennials. Herbs include thyme, spearmint, chocolate, mint, chives, fennel, rosemary, sage, dill, sweet marjoram, and basil. There is a touch section. Here they strive to display plants with different textures, ferns, prickly, um, prickly bird nest, spruce, mug pine, soft and fuzzy lamb cedar, spiky yucca, and red hot uh, poker. Across the, the uh, patio, shrubs and offering other interesting texture. There's our fragrance section. The section invites guests to enjoy sweet scented shrubs, such as lilies, uh, a peanut uh, butter tree, Carolina allspice and more. And there's a site section. This area is the framework for the garden as a whole. Hedges and trees provide a background for the various uh, beds, which are planted chiefly with bright annuals in the, sum in the summer. Many sight-impaired people can distinguish shape and color to enjoy the masses of color along with the sighted friends, their sighted friends. For 50 years now, volunteers from the garden clubs have maintained and improved the gardens each year. That itself is amazing. In closing, four ordinary people from simple backgrounds focused with a passion to provide a legacy for the blind community. They didn't need fancy titles or front page recognition. They just worked hard, they worked smart, and made it a success. Well, that is the whole enchilada, if you will. I hope you have learned a bit more about Oral Hall and how the foundation and came, came to be. I'll be happy to answer a few questions if there are any. Linda, any questions, any hands raised? Mitchell, his hand raised. Go ahead. You need, yeah. Okay, I, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, there's an interesting connection between me and Oral Hall and between Oral Hall and the Oregon School for the Blind. Uh, these are kind of subtle connections. Uh, when the judge left the school in 1931, 
he would have been taught piano tuning by a man by the name of Walter Dry, who later on became the superintendent at the Oregon School for the Blind and was the superintendent for many years there. Um, Walter Dry also taught a man by the name of Emil Fries, who started the piano training school in Vancouver, Washington, where I learned to tune and repair pianos, which ran from 1949 until uh, 2016. So there's some interesting connections uh, between the two. And, and I don't know how well, how, you know, how big the connections were between Emil, the founder of the school, and the judge, because they would have probably kind of crossed in the night that was around the time when Emil returned to the school to become a teacher and take over the piano tuning department. And uh, Walter Dry left the school to go to Oregon to become the superintendent at the Oregon State School for the Blind. So, and I happened to attend, I don't know if it was the actual grand opening, but I actually attended a, uh, a get together when the new dormitory was dedicated uh, in 1982, and there was a huge uh, collection of alumni from the Oregon School for the Blind. I, I have to tell you that that building was standing room only. I mean, it was, there was no plate; you couldn't hardly move. So it was it was quite a quite a cool event. I just thought I'd share those stories. Thank you, Don. I'm going to add your little um, bit there in terms of uh, the piano tuning to um, the judge's story. Thank you very much. I know there's other hands up. Who's next? M. Coffee. Yes, um, I had never heard of the Oral Hull Foundation or anything related to that <clears throat> until very recently because I am nowhere close to Oregon. I'm, I live in Alabama. And um, my question, and it, I may have just missed something in that wonderful treasure trove of information. But how did Oral Hull become interested in leaving her uh, legacy to blind and uh, visually impaired? Was it through her connection with the judge or after she met the judge? Because it doesn't sound like anyone in her immediate family was visually impaired unless I just missed something somewhere along the lines. Thanks. The best I can tell you, and, and there may be others on, on, on the, um, the Zoom call here that may, be able to, that may be more informed than I am, but what I've read is that at the, in 1962, she was going in for a surgery and she was a uh, cancer surgery and she wasn't sure that she would survive. And she and her husband uh, decided to um, uh, take a look at what to do with the property. And uh, they, the, obviously the justice of the peace was well known in Sandy. He had won a couple of elections and his law office was there in Sandy. So she went and, and met with, they met with him. And I think they kicked around a couple of ideas. Um, you know, he couldn't make a, a one, he, I mean, he, he couldn't say, well, why don't you do this? He could say, here's some things that you could do. And I think from that menu, they selected this. Uh, and why, um, what the compelling reason is, is open to speculation. But, <coughs> you know, it, it could be that they 
you know, the, the, the Hartzels um, in Portland were kind of a, a ruffian group. And it may be that in, in somewhere in her, in her background, in her mind, she wanted to do something good to make it for all the stuff that the, the, the drunken brawls and stuff that the family had had. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I obviously did not have an opportunity to talk to Oral Hall. Um, and I don't know that I know too many people um, that would still be living today that did have direct contact. I've actually contacted the Sandy Historical Society uh, and, and and looking at other things um, in terms of to see if I could find any old letters of correspondence where she may have, in her own handwriting, made it, you know, said why why she did what she did. So, um, so stay tuned to this channel. The other thing I would just add is this. Add is this. I'm sorry. Um, sorry. Um, I don't know why I'm echoing. I don't know here. why I'm echoing here. Hello. Uh, okay. Um, the other thing I would say is that obviously I, I depend upon a lot of different sources for the information. Um, and, and I unfortunately don't have a lot of, you know, I don't know that there's a treasure trove of, of materials from um, the whole family. Um, they had no survivors. Um, I don't know that, that her sister Gladys would have had much information because they seem to have gone different ways very early in the 1920s. Um, the, there is the, uh, in April this year, the 1950 census will be released and I will go back in and take a look and see what I can find in terms of uh, additional information that might be in the 1950 census. Um, so I don't know if that helps or not, but um, I, I, is anyone that's on, on the Zoom want to raise their hand and say if they have a, a know of a compelling reason, it would be helpful. Well, in the meantime, we've got Tony next. And after that, Linda, would you remind everybody how to raise lower hands and mute? Because uh, I think that's part of our, that was part of our echo problem. Yeah, and I think Annie wants to, uh, as well as Anthony afterwards. But yeah, after Anthony gives his. Go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I just wanted to say, E.G., thank you for an outstanding presentation. And um, I'm also on the board, and I think his presentation is a great way to celebrate our 60th anniversary of uh, the park. And I just want to let everyone know that EG is not at all underselling the park. It is an absolutely beautiful place, and it truly is a place where blind folks and visually impaired folks can go and just take a break from the world. Just enjoy the quiet and solitude and just uh, getting together with your friends. And um, it's really just a fantastic place. And it's uh, a gem that's not extremely well known in the community as other places are, other camps that people have gone to historically. But uh, the park is just really a great place. And who knows, there's a fish pond in the lower part of the camp, and that might be where one of those stills are, are buried. So anyway, <laughs> thank you, E.G., for your presentation. You're welcome, Tony. Tony is the president of the board, by the way, for those who don't know him. Uh, Annie, you're next. Annie, you need to unmute. Well, when I did that before, it caused E.G. to echo, he said. So um, I just... I, I had touched on this briefly with EG in an email, but um, 
our local KGW News frequently does a story at six o'clock. It's called uh, The Story, and it's all driven by viewers' questions and opinions. And um, I think it would be a great thing to share with them. They also dive into the vault and they get really, really old, old footage um from their vault um like when tom mccall you know was governor and um i think it would be a good resource perhaps for oral hall um foundation and to let people know about us and i just wanted to say thanks eg it was really great well thank you well thank you and cindy do you know how to mute and unmute she does. Oh, well, Annie did. If you're talking to me, yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. Um, I just wanted to comment. I have been to Oral Hall many times, and I love it. I tell everybody I know about it. Um, I tell them it's, it's a great place to go. We do all kinds of activities. I tell them what we do. Um. I just did a thing on Clubhouse. Uh, I was in a room and I was sharing about, you know, uh, my experience there. And, um, you know, I, I I love it all. You know, I love the, the well, especially the food. Oh, boy, the food is delicious. You know, and I always tell everybody, you don't get camp food. You get real, honest to goodness food. <laughs> you know. But I just wanted to share that I really love the camp and I, I always, when I'm there, I participate in the talent show all the time and everything like that. So I just wanted to uh, talk you guys up a bit because I, I definitely love you guys and I am a lifetime member of, of the Oral Foundation, so, or the Hall Foundation. So um, thanks, guys. I love you guys. So Thank it you. is getting to be about that time. Okay. I just want to say one last thing about the foundation and, and the park is we do not, it's not government funded. It is all done through donations and memberships and grants. So uh, we encourage anyone um, who wants to find out more. And I think Linda has some information about that. And thanks everyone for uh, paying, listening and, and asking good questions. So we would like to thank you for, for being at this presentation today. And we thank our Earl Hall contributors and members for all their physical and monetary support because that makes these calls possible. Uh, we do send out post-session notes in a monthly newsletter and I'll give you contact information shortly so that you can get that information. So have your writing tools ready. Uh, I would like to remind you that on Wednesday we have uh, a Zoom called Read More Books, Learn About Kindle at 1 to 2 Pacific Time. And on Thursday, we have a Zoom on Spring Cleaning at 1 to 2 Pacific Time. And um, since we're kind of short on time, um, I'm just going to briefly say that we do have a Spring Cleaning Getaway April 5th through 8th, 2022, that you might want to consider. And a Living with Sight Loss Seminar April 20th through 24th. First, 
and it's a two night, three day event that will be held at, at our park facility in Sandy, Oregon. And we, there are a lot of other retreats and things that we offer from spring through winter that that I hope you can become aware of, but I think we're pressed for time. Three ways of contacting us are the following. By phone, 503-668-6195. If you want to email us, it's at oral hall, O-R-A-L-H-U-L-L at gmail.com. And if you wish to visit our website, the website is www.holparkfortheblind. Let me see. I, I was looking at something. Um, .org. I was looking at the time to see how we're doing because I know you cut us off. Uh, we usually share some humor at the end, and I may have time for one or two. Based on Oral Hall having been a nurse, I decided that I would, I would take a shot at a phlebotomy joke. But it would be in vain. Uh, and the next, <laughs> the next one is Oral, Oral's, uh, <laughs> Oral's first husband was a baker. And one of his cupcakes was so very impressed with all of his bakery goods that what do you think he said to the other another cupcake? You ain't seen muffin yet. And as for wise words that I would share with you, Robert Redford once said, service is the rent you pay for life. And that should wind things up. We have one minute. Uh, Ron, do you have your hand up? I don't know if that's left over or not. If you, if you want to say something, you need yeah. to unmute. I had, for EG, I had a question because I don't know where I remember it, but it was on one of these webinars that when the, when the oral hall, uh, before her operation for cancer, she went in to the uh, courthouse and that's where she, you know, deciding what to do with the land. And that's where the judge, I guess, uh, suggested that she that she uh, leave it for uh, a foundation for the blind because I thought he was blind. That is correct. He was blind. In fact, he was featured. I have an article from the American Bar Association back in uh, 1959 where they featured him as a blind judge, uh, a rising star in, in, in the courts. Um, and uh, he and his wife are, are, were pictured and his life story was told there. But yes, he was blind. Uh, after his accident as a teenager when he was 15. The other three individuals, Aura Hall, Evangeline Philbin, and uh, Margaret Breck were all cited, but they did. They were passionate about serving um, the, the blind community. In fact, I've talked with Margaret Breck's daughter, the retired psychiatrist, and she mentions uh, ha having um, her mother bringing people from the, 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 par the park over to their house in um, in, in Clackamas County and, and having to serve them dinner. and But that was a regular feature that Margaret Breck had. She just really enjoyed the community.